Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with journalist Alex Kantrowitz, founder and editor of Big Technology. From commentary to interviews and news coverage, Alex only covers the big tech companies, and you may never have heard of the newest big player. Then Dr. Mark Summeray from Amelit Pharma. He talks about their innovative approach to treating hormonal conditions. We'll talk about two, when your parathyroid has been injured or removed, often during thyroid surgery, and another, when the pituitary gland starts overproducing growth hormone. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is five minutes. We've all seen little restaurants that were jammed with customers and then they doubled the space or moved to a larger spot and before you know it, they fail. In 2014, Stanford professors Bob Sutton and Huggy Rao came together to write Scaling Up Excellence, Getting to More Without Settling for Less. I asked them, what happens there? There's a couple of things that happen. One of the first things that comes to mind to me is you've got just sheer cognitive load. In fact, we've got a great example down where we are uh, on the peninsula in the Bay Area, there was a restaurant called John Bentley. It was a great restaurant in a place called Woodside, California. He opened the second one, and literally the load of having to keep two places going was more than he could take. So that that's one thing that um, causes... They both failed? No, no. He actually sold one to the employees, and now there's just John Bentley in Redwood City. So that was, that was a little bit too much cognitive load. The other thing that happened, which is our um, argument is that uh, it's one thing to have excellence in one place, but what scaling is for us is taking scaling from um, excellence from where it is to where it isn't. It, it actually, it works for John Bentley's a little bit too. The excellence didn't quite spread to the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. That idea of sort of multiplication um, is, is part Maybe of Maybe the first Starbucks was really fantastic and none of us knew it. It, it might have been. It might have been. So, so Huggy, what's, what else are your thoughts about this since you've studied these sort of situations? In the, the first uh, interesting challenge is if you're a restaurant, uh, you could argue for some kinds of restaurants, scale is actually the enemy of excellence. Uh, because the smaller you are, uh, and usually the fewer items you have on the menu, the more consistent your quality of execution, and you're also letting customers know, hey, we're exclusive. It's hard to get in here. The moment you scale, you're, of course, saying we're not exclusive, but the difficulty is typically the number of dishes on the menu go up, and if you're trying to execute on all of those fronts, that's tough to do. So you can almost see it coming if you understand what the profile is. When we actually talk about In-N-Out Burger and McDonald's in our book as sort of like a comparison, as you get bigger, the simpler you keep it, the easier it is to replicate. So In-N-Out Burger is a perfect example. But the problem is that as you move into different markets, there's pressure for customization. So that's why there's only In-N-Out Burgers in the United States and, in fact, most of the Western United States. But McDonald's, which are all over the world, they'll have different customization to meet the market. Everybody, if you travel around the world, you, you go into the McDonald's to see what's there. You see you see wine in Portugal. Right, right, right. <laughs> you see fish hot exactly. dogs in Japan. Exactly. It's like, I think your discussion of Home Depot going to China totally bears repeating. Most of us in the United States know Home Depot is the definitive do-it-yourself store. So and you can do it. You can do it. And, and they took that model without really any change, opened a dozen stores in a do-it-for-me culture, 
which is which is China, and uh, and they tried to convince the Chinese that really you want to do it yourself, and they went out of business. And uh, you know, one of my uh, really w- w- out of business. Out of it, there's not a single home. They're all twelve clo- are closed. And Chao Wang, one of my uh, uh, doctoral students, um, or actually master students who grew up um, in China, said so in China. If you're rich enough to shop at Home Depot, you're rich enough to hire somebody to do it for you. Plus, they don't have the culture. And, and the opposing case is IKEA, which is, you know, I actually can't stand buying IKEA furniture. And um, for I don't know about you, but for me, all my personal relationships with my wife, the most trying times have been trying to assemble that stuff. If a screwdriver is there, you might get a divorce. Yeah, there you go. Unbelievable <laughs> stuff. But, but, but in China, where it's the do-it-for-me um, culture, they are doing great. And they have delivery services and they have assembly services at a much higher level than the U.S. And that challenge, when you're spreading, is is something. I mean, we see it with little groups where they just will add just three or four more people. How much more do we insist that everybody be exactly a clone? And how much do we allow them to customize for their own preferences? And and, and when it comes to spreading excellence, it's it's a big challenge for the smallest or the largest organization or just a team. This 2014 Tech Nation interview with Bob Sutton and Huggy Rao features their book, Scaling Up Excellence, named to the best business book list of The Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Forbes, and The Washington Post. Bob and Huggy are still professors at Stanford, and they're still the best of friends. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Alex Kantrowitz. His 2020 book, Always Day One, has spawned his work as founder and editor of Big Technology. Then Dr. Mark Summeray, the chief medical officer of the French company Amelit Pharma. He uses the examples of unfortunate hormonal conditions in adults, whether missing essential hormones as a result of thyroid surgery, or perhaps overproducing growth hormones in the pituitary gland. There are lessons to be learned. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Alex Kantrowitz. Well, Alex, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, it's been a pandemic since you've been here. <laughs> Just exactly. Bookends. Bookends, as it were. And your book, Always Day One, was brand new at the time. I think it was April 2020. What a time for a book to come out. <laughs> Remind us all, what does Always Day One mean in tech company speak? That's right. And yeah, releasing a book on April 7th, 2020, I say it's like the worst time in more than a century since the Spanish flu to release a book. But I'm glad we're here <laughs> talking about it. Always day one. It means to approach each day as if it's your first. The best thing about being a startup is you come in and you don't ask, how do we maintain our legacy product? You ask, what does the market need today and how can we build it? And that's the problem. When companies get bigger, they forget that that's what they're all about is serving what the market needs at the moment. They spend all this time on the flagship product. And that's always day one is a 
promise from Jeff Bezos that Amazon would always be building as if it's its first day while it was underneath him, right? That it was not going to worry about maintaining whether it was an online bookseller or a first-party marketplace or a third-party marketplace. It would always go on to the next idea. And that's how we have cloud and voice computing and now artificial intelligence from them. Now, who was big tech then? And now, basically three years later, uh, who's big tech now? It's been a bit of an up and down road, but I would say back then, big tech was Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft. And I would say big tech today is Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft, and NVIDIA. NVIDIA. NVIDIA, exactly. I-N-V-I-D-I-A, NVIDIA. That's the one. Wow. Why? They are a very interesting company, but they're really capitalizing right now on this big artificial intelligence boom. Because what they've done is they've taken these chips that they've developed initially for video games and graphics and then for crypto mining. And they've said, hey, listen, if you want to train AI models and you want to run AI models, we have exactly the right software for you. So they ended up almost by a stroke of luck being at the right place at the right time. And any company that wants to build AI is going to be paying an NVIDIA tax, right? You're going to be paying NVIDIA somewhere along the way when you're training or you're using these models. And this year alone, NVIDIA's stock has gone up 222%, right? So it's now a $1.14 trillion company, came effectively out of nowhere by meeting its moment and seriously uh, exceeding all expectations. So when you talk about the big five now, you have to put a six there, and that's NVIDIA. And it's a little bit like... Intel was before we had the Intel inside stickers. It's like you didn't know what was inside it. Exactly. Yes, it is. I mean, it's interesting because computing, you sort of get two types of computing that really end up pushing the status quo forward. You have the silicon, right, or the underlying infrastructure, and then you have the stuff built on top of it, the software. And we had been ignoring the underlying chips for so long And focusing on the software, the chips just kept getting bigger. And we started wondering what we can build on top of them. But this moment just came where you had an amazing innovation in software that was built on top of cutting-edge hardware. And so now you're seeing both rise together. It's actually a very exciting moment for the tech industry to see them both work in concert. I have to say that usually when we have a company, we also have someone whose name is associated with it, either the head of it or the tech genius or or something like that. Is there anybody who's a star out of NVIDIA or perhaps more than one? Yes. So NVIDIA CEO Jensen Wong is now one of the more iconic people in the tech industry, which is amazing to say, because you're right. Most people still don't know who he is. And a year ago, nobody knew who he was. He is a very determined entrepreneur He's worked at NVIDIA for years, pushing this forward when a lot of people said, you know, this has a cap or they didn't fully realize the promise. Maybe he didn't even realize the promise. He wears a leather jacket, leather black jacket everywhere he goes. So he has that distinctive stylish touch. (laughs) Like the Jeff Bezos uh, Oxford cloth blue button down shirt and tan pants, khaki (laughs) pants he wore, wore, wore for years. Exactly. He's wearing this jacket. Yeah, for some reason, every tech CEO seems like they need their personal style touch. But anyway. Steve Jobs, black turtleneck jeans. Steve Jobs. Mark Zuckerberg with his T-shirts. So Jensen's got that too. But more importantly is his company is really moving forward in a way that that few have in such a short amount of time. And the thing is that 
you know, there's even talk that these large language models, things like ChatGPT, won't make a ton of money in the future because they're going to get commoditized, right? Everyone's going to have their own chatbot, but all those chatbots are going to be running on top of infrastructure. And when they do that, NVIDIA is going to make money all the way down the chain. So it's this amazing moment for the company and kudos to them fully taking advantage of the moment. And physically, where are they located? San Francisco. What do you know? It's something in the water here. (laughs) The truth is that when I say San Francisco, I mean greater uh, Silicon Valley area. But the thing is that Silicon Valley is having a resurgence now due to this AI boom. You have OpenAI, by the way, at their recent developer day. First thing Sam Altman said, who's the CEO there, first thing he says on the stage, we're here in San Francisco. We're proud to be in San Francisco. All the action is happening there. I loved living in San Francisco. I was there for six and a half years. In this city, it's great to see. This city is having a tech resurgence with the AI boom. Now, I remember back, this is kind of a funny story. This was back when I interviewed you for Always Day One. And you had been trying to get into Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg's press conference. You know, had some, you know, tech journalists had made it in. And you were like, I got to get in. I got to get in. And you got in. And it was a, a normal presser like that would be, they make some Words, 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 a lot of, you know, stuff they want you to know. They want everybody to know. And then they say, we'll take a few questions. And, and then they don't really answer them. And then it's all over. And But you went in and here was uh, Mark Zuckerberg made a very short presentation and asked you for feedback and asked you know, you, to, you specifically for feedback. You know, I don't suppose he asked you for feedback about switching the name to Meta, did he? No, he didn't. I would have really advised against that, but... I guess that's one of the things with the leader. Sometimes you got to ask people what they think, and sometimes you got to go ahead and charge forward with what your vision tells you. But this whole concept of asking for feedback um, actually relates to the name change. I'll tell you why. If companies are always having to reinvent themselves, okay, last century, the average company lasted 67 years on the S&P 500. This century right now, 15 years. That's the concept of always day one. You always have to be reinventing yourself. You always have to be delivering what the market needs now, not worrying what you provided before. And one of the ways you do that is you ask for feedback. You say, hey, what do we have to be building next? What do we need? What are we missing? Where are our blind spots? And that's what Zuckerberg was doing. He was trying to elicit feedback to make sure that he wasn't going to miss the next big idea that Facebook was going to build. By the way, totally relates to the name change with Meta because Meta means, meta, of course, short for metaverse. Metaverse all about virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality. And what Mark Zuckerberg is saying with that name is effectively, don't worry about the flagship product. Don't worry about Facebook. We are going to worry about the future, about this new hardware that's going to allow us to determine what the operating system is going to be, what the experiences are going to be, and we're going to get there early. He's even more always day one than Jeff Bezos by saying that. That being said, I think they could have kept the name. Yeah, I was going to say, you could have a separate product or a separate division or just a separate whatever. Google has, you know, ABC above it, Alphabet above it. You know, it's like it's still Google. They didn't try to change that name. That's right. Good point. Good point. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Alex Kantrowitz. You may remember him from his 2020 book, Always Day One how the tech titans plan to stay on top forever. A former technology journalist with BuzzFeed News, he is now the founder and editor of Big Technology on the web at bigtechnology.com. Well, 
The pandemic drove an enormous amount of technology change, especially in communications. There are audio podcasts, video podcasts, newsletters, discussion groups, all kinds of things. Multiple people getting together to develop content as never before. And from this, big technology, your new effort has sprung. What are all the aspects of big technology? So my book comes out in April 2020, as I mentioned, and the worst thing you could have as a reporter is to write a book that flops because then your ceiling is just limited. And when the book comes out in the middle of the pandemic, I realized that if I stayed in my reporter job, I was working full time as a reporter at BuzzFeed News, I would never be able to expand on the areas of the book and push the book in a way that it merited after all the work that went in and ultimately limit my ceiling. I didn't want to do that. So I decided to quit my job and become an independent reporter. And what that meant was starting my own Substack publication called Big Technology, where I would write a weekly story based off of something that I saw that was interesting in the tech giants, even better if I could relate it to the topics of Always Day One, but we're now three and a half years later. So it's all fresh and new reporting. And then I knew I was leaving a company with a great brand, BuzzFeed, right? People would talk to BuzzFeed because they knew there was a lot of reach. And I was starting big technology and nobody knew big technology. I didn't even know big technology a month prior. And I said, what could I do to give people, interesting people, an excuse to talk to me in a way that they wouldn't if I just came to them out of the blue? Answer was to create a podcast. So I have this new podcast. Well, not new anymore. It's three years old. It's called Big Technology Podcast. And it started off as a weekly conversation. I was like, let me just find the most interesting people I can find in the tech world, sit down with them for an hour and talk to them and and learn from them in a way that I was doing in my reporter job. So I'd still do that. And then we break down the week's tech news every Friday with a great analyst named Ron John Roy, who also writes this great newsletter on Substack called Margins. And so that's effectively what big technology is, weekly newsletter and a twice weekly podcast. I think that it covers tech the same way I'd been doing before, but in a real independent lens. It's not part of a newsroom. So people who read it appreciate the independent perspective. They know that it's not going along with a sea of reporters, that it's original thought, original reporting. And I, I happen to think that the interviews are a lot of fun. At least I enjoy them when I do them. Yeah, I know. Me too. I don't know if anybody else does. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what counts, right? Like, let's at least have a good time. But I hope you guys do. I hope all <laughs> you people listening do. Yeah, we're having a good time. You know, I want to explain a little about this book publication business. It's like they give you a shot in the first one, finally. And there's a whole thing, mostly out of New York. It's like this whole thing about who's going to publish you and what they're going to pay you as an advance and all of these things that go on. And if you go to write a second book, they look at how many copies your first book. It doesn't matter what reason it didn't go. That sort of defines you. If your first book was a major seller, you can write a terrible second book, but you'll get a great advance. You know, it's a crazy kind of thing. And you're right. It doesn't matter why, but it matters that it's just, it was such a crazy time for everybody. And even though you did get good sales, you didn't get the kind of sales you would normally get. And so that was a little bit of luck. It doesn't feel like it at the time, Alex, but it was a little bit of luck. I mean, yeah, you, you, I feel like as a reporter, you work your whole career trying to build up to the point where you can pitch a book. And it was amazing to pitch one and to get a publisher to sign on to it and then to go and write it. And yes, the timing was terrible, but it really was a blessing, I think, because 
without that book and without the timing, big technology wouldn't exist. And by creating big technology, I'm now able to do things that I never could have beforehand. Picking the story every week, picking the guest every week, finding this amazing rapport with an audience who now emails me directly and I email, email them back when they get the newsletter and all the feedback from the podcast. So to me, it's been a blessing. And the coolest thing now is we have a newsletter audience that's approaching 150,000 subscribers and a podcast audience that I can announce here today is on track to do a million downloads a year from now on, which is amazing. And so that will make, if there's a second book, it will just make going to a publisher and saying, hey, let's work together a lot easier because there's a built-in audience. Yes, you will write that other book and more to come, I'm sure. But uh, it just changes the whole the whole exchange there, the whole weighted exchange. Uh, now, you were our first and foremost a journalist. How has this, just technology in general changing, and this transformation of your, your journalist output or your journalist vehicle, how has that changed how you do journalism? It's been incredible to work with the suite of tools that are available today. And without them, I don't think I'd be able to have created big technology. I mean, look five years ago. Could you create a paid email newsletter? Could you create a podcast from your kitchen effectively? You couldn't. But right now I'm able to use tools like Substack for email and there's great podcasting tools. I started with Red Circle and then moved to Megaphone and use Riverside to record. I mean, we're recording over the browser right now and I have my microphone plugged into my MacBook and I'm able to, you know, share some good good quality audio with you. So the era of recording in a studio while still very nice is not mission critical anymore. It's effectively transitioning to something that we're doing now, which is amazing because it just democratizes the entire profession. And so to go from day one to know that I had the back end that would allow me to send this newsletter and the back end that would allow me to produce this podcast with little overhead and not having to rent a studio space has been absolutely incredible and crucial to big technology's ability to succeed. And before that, we had radio. You not only had to produce it all in studios and get the guests to come in, et cetera, et cetera, you had to convince program directors to put you on air. So you had to be on air at a particular time. People had to listen to you, have a following. Who does that now? Nobody does that. Right. It's so interesting because when I was in high school, I wrote a local radio station and said, hey, can you put me on air? There's a sports talk show that I like to listen to. And I was like, I want to be on that show. And they did. And it was amazing. And then eventually they transitioned me to producer. I don't think I was ready for primetime then. But a 16, 17 year old who has an interest in broadcast today would actually skip that step and go straight to creating their own owned and operated properties. And the cool thing is that if you work on this year after year, week after week, you end up just building an audience that will follow you. And that's that can be permanent. So you don't need the satellite or the 500 megawatts, whatever it was that we were broadcasting out of the community college radio station when I was in high school. You can do it now, you know, as a podcast. And and frankly, you know, it all goes together because if people enjoy getting their information through audio, they can listen to the radio. And then when their favorite shows are not on, go catch up on podcasts. And then if they like podcasts, they can do that. And then it builds interest in radio. So I think this is really a golden age of audio right now. Well, I have to say, you know, television didn't destroy radio, that's for sure. And we are grateful for all those stations out there that carry us, not only in the United States, but all over the world. Um, and we're going to keep putting out to you. Don't worry about that. But the whole idea that you can come off that and 
listen anytime and work it into your schedule, et cetera, you know, is actually really great. The fact that you, you don't have to start there. That was the only way to do it. That's completely transitioned. And that's all thanks to technology. And that's, I think that's terrific. Now, you absolutely, we're not going to get out of here. I'm going to grill you here. What's the biggest technology stories today? What do you see? What from your perspective? We're about to go through this amazing arms race when it comes to artificial intelligence. So we mentioned OpenAI earlier in the conversation. About a year ago, they came out with this chatbot, ChatGPT, that immediately becomes the fastest growing consumer product in history. And 100 million people use that in the first few weeks. And now they're saying 100 million people are using it every week. So you're starting to see companies scramble not only to try to win over regular people to use their products uh, for day-to-day use, but also to help companies build on the back end similar tools that would help them communicate with their customers or give their customers added functionality. That's going to allow them, for instance, if you're a document company, to talk to your PDFs, which I know sounds so exciting to so many people. But if you're working in a business, <laughs> talking to your PDF and asking what's inside of it is like the coolest freaking thing. And then there's also going to be specialty specialized bots. Like there's a bot called Harvey that lawyers are starting to use to instead of going through like pages and pages of discovery, just uploading all these legal documents and starting to ask questions about what's inside them. So there is going to be this amazing arms race between some of the biggest companies, not only OpenAI, but uh, Meta and Amazon and Google, and the list goes on. And to watch these companies, you know, go to battle is going to be fascinating, not only from a competitive perspective, but also just from from a perspective of being someone using this technology. I mean, it's similar to the way that, you know, podcasts help, uh, you know, push radio and make radio better and radio helps push podcasts and make podcasts better. So all that competition is good. Well, the competition that we're seeing in AI right now is just going to make the bots better, the image generators better, and it's going to make interacting with companies through chat and through AI a much more impressive and enjoyable experience than it ever has before. And I personally, as someone following this space, I'm just thrilled to see see the high stakes battle touch off because if you lose this battle, you could really be in bad shape. Maybe we even drop out of the echelon of tech giant if you fail. I mean, specifically thinking about Google, right? That could be terrible for them. And so when the stakes are high and the innovation is significant, you end up seeing the tectonic shifts that make the tech world so exciting to follow. And that's what we're seeing right now. Tectonic shifts. Of course, we spell it a different way in technology, but tectonic (laughs) shifts here. And it's like there's no guarantee if you're big, you're going to win. I mean, don't forget, Microsoft thought that it was going to beat Google with Bing. You know, didn't happen just didn't happen. And so you're making a move. You didn't make a move. It doesn't catch on. You just don't know some of these things. You just have to, we'll have to wait and see. But come and ask Alex. He'll tell you what's going right and wrong, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, look, it's always, really is always day one. I mean, if you think about Google. Google was sitting on this amazing search lead, right? If you wanted to search, you Googled something. It was a verb. Now you might chat GPT something when you're trying to figure something out major strategic threat to Google that it didn't even know existed a couple of years ago. And so having to reinvent yourself over and over again and do so effectively is crucial for these businesses to survive. And you're seeing that now with a search business. You're seeing it even with the companies like OpenAI that push this forward. But now we're seeing tremendous competition from all different sides. Well, Alex, it's a real pleasure. I hope you come back and, and see us again. 
Thank you. Absolutely. Whenever you need, I'll be around. My guest today is Alex Kantrowitz, the founder and editor of Big Technology, from commentary to interviews to podcasts to coverage of all kinds on the web at bigtechnology.com. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Both Whole Tech Nation programs and solely Biotech podcasts are available wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, technation.com and biotechnation.com. In the second half of our show, Dr. Mark Summeray from Amulet Pharma talks about its treatment and development, which may be key should you find that you underproduce or overproduce essential hormones. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation. Over time, we may develop conditions where we either stop producing hormones or produce less than we need, or alternatively, overproduce hormones. Today, we'll look at the French company Amelit Pharma. It's developing a number of hormone correcting treatments, and we'll talk about two. One condition is caused when the parathyroid, that tiny gland behind the thyroid, is injured or removed. We'll also talk about a second condition called acromegaly, when the pituitary gland overproduces growth hormone, causing abnormal and visible growth in the hands, feet, and face. Dr. Mark Summeray is the chief medical officer of Amelit Pharma. I was able to speak with him from Amelit's offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Well, Dr. Summeray, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, uh, everybody has a thyroid. Mm-hmm. What could go wrong? Well, most of the time, nothing. But occasionally, there's a variety of things that can happen with the thyroid gland that mean that the gland may need to be removed. Um, for example, you can develop uh, cancer or a tumor in, in the gland, uh, or you can have Uh, cells in the gland that are overactive and producing too much of the hormone 
that is produced by the thyroid gland, thyroxine, or, or not enough, in which case you have to have uh, replacement uh, tablets to make up for the missing hormone. So there's a variety of things that can happen. Now, from our earlier conversation, I also learned that you don't just have a thyroid, you also have a parathyroid. What does that do? Yes, so those glands are immediately behind the thyroid gland in the neck. And they're important because they produce a, another hormone called parathyroid hormone, which regulates primarily the amount of calcium you have in your bloodstream. So it's very important to make sure that the levels of calcium don't go too high or too low. Don't they usually say calcium, you know, strong bones, good teeth? Isn't that the, isn't that the message from the milk people? <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> true. So you, you don't want to have too little calcium and, and having too little calcium in your diet can cause problems. But you also don't want to have too much in circulating in the blood. So these glands are important for keeping the calcium exactly where it should be. So it's not the calcium, but it's what helps the calcium be in the right proportion. Exactly. It's producing the hormone that the body needs to regulate the calcium levels. So when you have thyroid surgery, as an example, uh, does that involve the parathyroid? Well, it shouldn't because um, usually the surgeon is trying to remove the thyroid gland and that gland alone. But because the parathyroid glands are very small, and they can be difficult to see at the time of the surgery. And they're often very, very closely caught up in the thyroid gland. They can be removed at the same time, inadvertently, um, or simply because the surgeon isn't able to remove the thyroid gland without removing the parathyroid glands as well. And could the parathyroid simply be not operating correctly? So, it's not usually the case. What happens is that the surgeon has removed the thyroid gland, usually because of a cancer or because the gland is simply too big and it's causing problems because of its size. And when the thyroid gland has been removed, the parathyroids are damaged or removed as well. And it was something that the surgeon wasn't able to avoid doing. So then what happens after the surgery is a result of having inadvertently removed the parathyroid glands and then caused a problem because now the patient's parathyroid hormone levels are too low. So um, it's a, if you like, an unintended consequence of the surgery on the thyroid gland. How often does this happen? How many people are affected? Well, fortunately, it doesn't happen very often, but even in the most experienced surgeon's hands, we can say maybe between 1% and 3% of cases. So it just, uh, although it doesn't happen very often, even with the most experienced surgeons, uh, it's sometimes unavoidable. What is it like if, for any reason, you lose your parathyroid gland? Well, in the beginning... Um, so once the thyroid gland has been removed, and this is the most common scenario, the patients are monitored very carefully to see if they have adequate parathyroid glands uh, left behind. And it's not apparent uh, whether or not that's happened um, until 
usually six months after the surgery. So the patient's calcium levels are monitored very carefully. And often the parathyroid gland uh, function will recover because usually there's some gland that's still been left after the surgery. But if uh, after six months, the patient is still needing calcium supplements because the parathyroid hormone levels are too low, that's usually when the diagnosis is made. And um, that's when, uh, certainly after a year, nowadays, the conventional uh, time point for the diagnosis to be formally made, uh, that's when that happens. So if there's no recovery of the parathyroid uh, glands, a year after the surgery, then the patient is formally considered to have hypoparathyroidism, which is the, the medical term for low parathyroid hormone levels. How many people are affected by this? So in the United States, approximately 70,000 people are thought to have hypoparathyroidism. And um, those people, uh, when they're uh, diagnosed, um, they have a, a disease which is something that will stay with them, unfortunately, for the rest of their life because we, you know, we can't um, replace the, the glands. So what we have to do is manage the consequences. And those consequences are a result of not enough parathyroid hormone, which leads to low levels of calcium in the blood. So these patients suffer symptoms of hypoparathyroidism that can be extremely debilitating. Uh, they can have uh, symptoms caused by um, muscle cramps, um, muscle spasms, uh, strange uh, tingling and numbness sensations that affect the, the skin. Um, they often find it very difficult to concentrate on routine everyday tasks. They have a condition which is called brain fog, which is a very you know, descriptive term for uh, how they feel. And um, they, it really interferes with the quality of life. And the problem is that the only way that they can manage these symptoms is by taking large quantities of calcium tablets and vitamin D which helps with the absorption of those calcium tablets. And as a result, they have to walk around everywhere with a supply of calcium tablets in a Ziploc zip bag. Um, and it's, it's something that really dominates their lives. And of course, the other problem is that they can manage the symptoms to some extent with these calcium tablets. But at night, of course, when you're asleep, you know, you get, uh, you can't remember to take calcium tablets as soon as you start to feel symptoms. So they often will wake up with these symptoms and it causes a lot of, as you can imagine, distress and debilitation. And many of these patients end up, you know, becoming quite depressed about the, uh, the condition that they have. What are the long-term effects on the body of having this condition? So in addition to the symptoms that I described, the effects on the body are caused by deposition of calcium um, salts in some of the tissues in the body over the years, and also the damaging effects of having too much calcium in the urine, because in this disease, because they don't have the hormone, 
the kidneys are not able to reabsorb calcium normally. So the calcium that they do have in the blood ends up leaking in high quantities into the urine, and that causes kidney uh, damage caused by kidney stones and um, a deposition of calcium in the tissue of the kidney. So long term, there are multiple consequences, and the kidney is certainly one of the organs that's affected. Well, why not just give them the hormone? We'd like to do that, but unfortunately, uh, we have to inject the hormone. And when we inject it, it has a very short duration of action because it has a, a, a short residence time in, in the blood and in the body. So after 45 minutes, half of it's gone completely from the bloodstream. And the effect only lasts really for an hour or two. So constantly giving injections of this hormone isn't really an option. Uh, we need to find an alternative. Now, this is what Amelit is working on. What are you doing? So we've taken uh, an approach which involves modifying the hormone so that we have something we can inject, which has a very long duration of action, even though it has a short residence time in the blood. So uh, the, the, the drug that we have, which is called anebaparatide, um, is specifically designed to bind to the same target as the natural hormone, but its activity lasts a lot longer. So after a single injection, we still see the action of the drug on the calcium levels 24 hours later. Dr. Mark Summeray is the chief medical officer of Amelit Pharma. Amelit's focus is on rare endocrine and related diseases. We've just been talking about their drug candidate to continuously replace the hormone which processes calcium in the body. It requires a daily injection. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Now, when you give someone an injection, it, it covers their whole body. Mm-hmm. Does it do different things in different places? So the, the, the drug binds specifically to the receptors that we have um, that are there because of the natural hormone. So it's binding to the same receptors and it is present in different tissues in the body. But this drug effect is really focused in the kidney and the bone, um, where in the kidney, it stimulates the reabsorption of calcium so that patients no longer have the problem with excessive amounts of calcium in the urine. And in the bone, it stimulates uh, the bone to so-called turnover, which means that we break down old bone and replace it with new bone, which is something that in um, normal healthy situation happens all the time. So in patients with this condition, because they lack the hormone, the bone goes to sleep. It becomes dormant. So the old bone accumulates and is not broken down and replaced by new healthy bone. When we treat them with with our drug, what we see is the reawakening of the bone and the bone starts to turn over again and old bone is broken down and new bone is made to replace it. So the actions of the drug are largely focused um, in the kidney where we see the reabsorption of calcium 
and in the bone where we see a restoration of normal balanced turnover of bone. So without a medication such as this, over time, your bones are going to be in terrible shape. Well, so it's a bit controversial in the disease whether or not patients um, who have hyperparathyroidism have a higher risk of bone fracture. That's the thing we are concerned about. We do know that this old bone uh, situation um, is not normal. So we we know that the structure of the bone is not uh, as it should be. It's not healthy. What we're not sure about, because we don't have enough patients with this disease followed for long enough, is what incidence of increased risk of fracture that represents. However, we know it's not a normal, healthy situation. And one of the main problems, actually, with the bone in this condition is that many of the patients with this disease are postmenopausal women. And the reason for that is that postmenopausal women are more frequently have thyroid cancer than other um, demographics. And postmenopausal women, as everyone generally is aware, tend to have bone loss over time because of the absence of estrogen. So they're at more risk of bone fracture. So one of the most important components of managing this condition is to replace the function of the hormone, parathyroid hormone, with a treatment that does not cause bone loss. And in other words, to keep the calcium levels in the blood in the normal range, but not to do it by withdrawing the calcium from bone at the expense of causing uh, a loss of bone mass, because particularly in peri or postmenopausal women, that could increase the risk of bone fracture beyond what they already have. What was so interesting to me about what you said is so many times we say, we just want to fix this. And you're like, wait a minute, we have a complex situation here. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure all of these things return to balance, none at the expense of another. Yes, exactly. And it's very important that we don't solve one problem and then create another one. And in particular, uh, the bone situation for a sizable subgroup of patients with this disease is one that needs special attention because of the the uh, the fact that post peri or postmenopausal women are at increased risk of bone fracture. So we, we mustn't make that situation worse uh, in solving the problem they have with the calcium levels in the blood. Now you're currently in a phase three trial, the last phase of clinical testing. Mm-hmm. Tell us about it. What is it like for someone in it? Uh, where are you testing in the world? And uh, can people still join this trial? Yes. So we have sites in hospital centers in various countries around the world, including um, several sites in the United States, as well as in Europe and Australia, Canada. So the study has just started, as you, as you said. Um, it's open to patients who have hypoparathyroidism. And generally speaking, uh, it's a fairly straightforward um, set of criteria that one has to satisfy to be eligible. So most patients with hypoparathyroidism will be able to participate. Um, and it involves uh, 
being randomly allocated either to our drug or to a placebo and then being very closely monitored for six months on treatment. And during that six month period, the calcium levels in the blood will be evaluated and the supplements that patients take, those calcium tablets and the vitamin D tablets that they take, will be gradually withdrawn in a careful way. And obviously those patients who are randomized to the drug, one would expect to be successfully withdrawn from the supplements and to maintain calcium in the desired normal range. And those that are on placebo will have to stay on the supplement. So they, they'll start to be withdrawn and then they'll have to be reinstated. So that's really the evaluation is how many times, how many patients are able to come off supplements and still have normal calcium levels. Um, the other important thing to know about the study is that the random allocation is two to one. So that means that for every patient who enters the study, they have a two in three chance of being random, randomized to receive the drug and a one in three chance randomized to placebo. But then after the six month evaluation period, all patients will be on the drug. So those that were on the placebo will be moved across, if you like, to uh, receive the drug. And then there's a, another uh, six month um, treatment period on the drug. And actually probably beyond that, all the patients will probably stay on the treatment ultimately until hopefully we get the drug approved. Now is this self-injection? Yes, it is. Um, now obviously we provide um, some assistance so that patients can learn how to do that. It may be unfamiliar obviously to many people, um, but we make it very easy, so user-friendly because we provide uh, a pen device which has the drug in a solution, in a cartridge within the pen. It's very easy to dial the, the dose that is needed, so the dose of the drug may change during the course of the evaluation, depending on each patient's response. But it's easy to adjust and the physicians who are taking care of the patients in the study provide those instructions based on what happens to the calcium levels in the blood. So each patient will be instructed on how to use the pen. Uh, it's very much like um, the kind of pen device with a very fine needle that is used by people with diabetes every day. And um, so it's, um, it shouldn't be uh, too concerning. It should be quite straightforward um, for patients to manage. And this would be once a day, sort of at the same time every day? Yes. Approximately? Exactly. Yeah, once a day. And um, yes, it, you know, it shouldn't be a problem for, for, for patients. And once they get used to doing it, um, I'm sure, you know, for most people, it, it's, not, it's not daunting at all, even though it may sound a little bit daunting at the beginning. Brush your teeth, give yourself an injection. <laughs> yes, kind of Very thing, simple. Yes. Okay, so it's got a routine, a routine yes. here. Um, now, you've been talking about measuring calcium in the blood. Do you go forward to see a differential in their bone at all? Yes, yeah, so we, we want to monitor what happens to the bone. So as I mentioned before, we expect to see a, a resumption, a return of bone turnover. So we start to see something that's much more normal or physiological. And we expect that that will translate over the longer term 
into a stable situation, which is more healthy for patients where they are replacing old bone with new bone and they're not losing or creating bone over time. They're in an equilibrium or a balance. So we're going to do some imaging tests, which are non-invasive and very straightforward for patients to have uh, based on a special type of X-ray, which will tell us about the total bone mass that, that um, patients have over time on treatment. So we can see what's happening to the, the amount of bone that they have, the density of the bone, and also the quality of the bone to some extent. Now, how did they find out about joining this trial? So this is something that they can talk to their own physician about. So well, patients with hypoparathyroidism will be managed by an endocrinologist. And it's something that the endocrinologist can look into. So some of the patients may in fact already be seen by an endocrinologist that is participating in the study. Other patients may not be, but even in those cases, they can talk to their endocrinologist about that they're aware of the study and the endocrinologist can make the contact for the patient with whichever is the closest, most convenient participating site. Now, I have to tell people that Amelet is working on a number of conditions, uh, and uh, there's one that I want to talk about. Uh, it's early. It's, it's in humans. It's phase one. But it's another condition which has a, a hormone issue, mm. um, and that's a condition in which you have too much growth hormone. Tell us about that. Yes, yeah, so this condition is called acromegaly. It's also a fairly unusual or rare uh, disease. And as you said, it, it's caused by high levels of growth hormone that are being produced by a benign tumor. So not a malignant cancer, but uh, a group of cells in the pituitary gland, which is at the base of the brain, that are overproducing growth hormone. And this causes all sorts of problems over time. Uh, it sometimes happens in childhood, but when it happens in adulthood, unfortunately, it's a diagnosis that can sometimes be missed for a long time because the symptoms happen very slowly over time. And they're a bit vague. These symptoms are um, not necessarily specific. They don't make the doctor think about acromegaly in the beginning. But the condition is one that needs to be treated. And uh, because it causes symptoms, but also longer term complications like diabetes and cardiovascular diseases. Um, uh, so it's a, a serious condition that if it's not treated will lead to long term uh, organ damage and, and, and it also negatively impacts patients quality of life quite substantially. So it, it causes um, joint pains, joint swelling, it causes blood pressure to be raised, it causes uh, tiredness, uh, leth um, difficulty, um, low energy, difficulty concentrating. Um, it, it causes um, symptoms related to the complications like diabetes and those kinds of... It's like, Joe, Joe, you're just getting old. Get used to it. It well, turns out it is something. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it, it, so the symptoms are rather nonspecific, but they're quite debilitating. And as a result, until a doctor thinks of the possibility, unless they recognize the physical signs, um, which are can be quite subtle, 
but to an experienced physician, an endocrinologist, they immediately recognize them. Um, sometimes the diagnosis is missed, but these physical signs include um, usually facial features that become coarser, um, the jaw becomes a bit bigger, the brows become more prominent, the, um, the joints become swollen. Um, these, these kinds of physical changes um, are typical of acromegaly and would be recognized by somebody that sees acromegaly patients but may be missed by a doctor that doesn't. Is there a test for it, a medical test? Yes, you can measure uh, growth hormone levels uh, or a, a related um, hormone called IGF-1, which is produced by the liver in response to growth hormone. These are um, diagnostic, uh, they're laboratory tests you can do on the blood. Well, Dr. Samurai, I have to say, there's a lot of interesting things going on at Amalek Pharma. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. You don't take any of the easy ones, do you? <laughs> no. Well, the company is focused on rare hormonal diseases, and uh, we have expertise in the company that um, is uh, particularly applicable to these kinds of conditions because the people who work at Amalek have a lot of experience both in terms of the chemistry and the design of the, the, uh, the protein, the short protein molecules that, we, that are our drugs, and the development um, of them once they get out of testing in the lab and into the clinic. So um, it's a group of people who've all worked in the field for quite a long time. And um, of course, we will benefit um, from each other's expertise. And hopefully, we, we can move some new drugs through development and get them approved so that they're available for patients to, to benefit from. Well, Dr. Samurai, thank you so much for joining me, and I hope you'll come back and see us again. It's been a pleasure. I hope so, too. Many thanks. Dr. Mark Samurai is the chief medical officer of Amulet Pharma, a French company with additional offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts. More information is available at amuletpharma.com. That's Amulet, A-M-O-N. L-Y-T, Amulet, amuletpharma.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.